Driver training instructors impress upon their students the importance of approaching vehicles. When two vehicles approach one another from opposite directions, well, let's just say you want to get that right. It's pretty important. A good driver realizes that the approach to another vehicle can be the difference between a safe trip and a tragedy. I think that relationships with people are something like this, aren't they? How we approach other people is at times very important, and there is much at stake. There are times we really want to get it right. If you were going to meet this week, you just found out you were going to meet President Bush in his office, in the Oval Office. I think you'd think a little bit about your approach, wouldn't you? Be pretty concerned that you got that right. And you've been through these experiences, I'm sure, many times. Think of going to a job interview, meeting with a potential employer. You want to present yourself properly. You're concerned about the approach. You're concerned about how you dress. You're concerned about what you say. Those initial words are very important. And you're thinking about how do I approach this potential employer. You might have to confront someone with a problem. We think very hard at those times about how we approach that individual. Maybe you're going to petition your parents about something you really, really want and you're not sure how they're going to respond. You get your plan all together, you think very hard about it, and you really sweat the details of your approach. That first meeting with the potential parents-in-law. Wow. You really think about how you look and about what you say and about how you're going to present yourself. Don't say something really stupid, right? We care about how we approach people in certain situations at certain times. There are times that we realize that our approach to another person is so important that we desperately want to get it right. And if you've been in one of these situations, you know that you're palms can sweat and your heart can pound and you can be so very concerned. I'll never forget a warm May evening during my junior year in college. I was walking down a narrow sidewalk with a friend late at night and on the pathway ahead approaching me was a young lady that I was very attracted to and had been for some time. I can still see in my mind's eye, we'll never forget, Beth Reed walking down that sidewalk under the arching expanse of an old oak tree in the night light. And I thought, there she is, dressed up after, for a baccalaureate service that had taken place earlier that evening. She was beautiful. She was alone. This was my chance. And you can imagine I was pretty concerned about my approach. Things go through your mind in a moment of time like don't trip. <laughs> and what are you going to say? And don't just choke and say hi and pass by. You've got to stop her. And you have to say something to her. And it's got to be the right thing. I mean, these things all, in a, in a moment of time, all hit you at once. 
And how are you going to let her know that your heart's not pounding? You know, in the big scheme of things, that was a pretty unimportant approach. And in the big scheme of the universe, all of these approaches may not all in themselves be very important. But think about this. How anxious we become to approach certain people at certain times in exactly the right way. It really matters. If we can make so much out of our approach of people in certain situations, should we not make much of how we approach God? How do you come into the presence of God? How do you approach Him? How do you relationally enter His presence and communicate with the Most High God of heaven and earth? In the big scheme of things, this really matters. We want to get this right. There's so much at stake. It is more important than all of the approaches to other people all combined into one. You don't want to get this wrong. And so I'm very thankful that that issue is addressed in part in Luke chapter 18, as it is addressed throughout all of Scripture, certainly. I think we could say, in a sense, that that is what the Bible is all about. How a sinner can approach God. But as we look at Jesus' teaching coming to Luke chapter 18, we find here that in two parables and in one rebuke to his disciples, Jesus counsels us on how to approach God. We find, first of all, that our approach to God should be one of persistent petition. That is, we should consistently repeatedly, routinely, never giving up, approach God in prayer. We notice this in verse 1 where Luke writes, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. This is what Jesus will be teaching us here, that we should always pray and not give up. Jesus will exhort us on our approach to God and says that it should be persistent, unyielding prayer that marks that approach. We do not want to lose heart or grow apathetic or aloof in our approach to God. Jesus is going to explain that further, but he starts first with an illustration, a parable. And he says, verse 2, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice from my adversary. She kept on coming. Grant me justice from my adversary. In that day, widows were virtually defenseless. They had almost no rights and even less influence in the society. This woman had been wronged, apparently financially, and she begs this judge, help me. He, this godless judge, is her only hope. And she comes back time after time after time. Jesus goes on, verse 4, For some time he refused. 
I don't want to hear from you. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. She's beating me up with these constant requests and pleadings. I can't stand this any longer. This woman is going to drive me crazy. The only thing that moves this unrighteous judge is his own comfort. But in this case, that's enough. And Jesus applies the parable to us when he says, verse 6, listen to what the unjust judge says. So Jesus wants us to focus in on this man's words. Think about what this unjust judge has said. Verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Let's stop there for a moment. I think there's some things we need to understand about this response on Christ's part of this teaching. The contrast is clearly between God as judge and this woman and God's people. Jesus says clearly, it's pretty simple to understand his point, if this unholy, uncompassionate judge is moved by the persistent appeal of this widow, do you think the holy judge of the universe who is filled with compassion and love and a sense of right and wrong is going to ignore you forever? Is he going to ignore these petitions for justice that he hears from his people? And we ask, what petitions? What prayers for justice? What are you talking about, Jesus? It's difficult to know precisely how and why Luke puts together his gospel the way that he does. But there is perhaps here a place where we must draw from what precedes and understand that Luke intends a connection between what Jesus says here and what he has said previously. Go back to chapter 17, and if you'll remember as we looked last week at verses 20 through 37, we're dealing here with what is referred to as an eschatological passage, that is, it's dealing with end times. It's dealing with the future. Now, in that passage, remember that Jesus said in verse 22, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. First, verse 25, verse 25, First, he, that is the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus prepares his disciples, I am going to die. I'm going to be rejected by this nation. And you are my people. I will die, you will be left behind, and in the interim between my departure and my return, you are going to long to see my return. Why? In part because they're going to suffer too. In a world hostile to the purposes of Jesus, 
God's people will suffer injustice and persecution and God's honor will be systematically assaulted. Think of it biblically, think of it in in theological terms. The offspring of the serpent will continue its assault against the offspring of God. That is your life as a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, says Jesus to his followers. And it is in that context that he speaks of justice, of vindication. So go back to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 18. God will bring about justice for his chosen ones, or the Greek word his elect ones, who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, that they get it quickly. So I think it says this to us as God's people. If you are going to approach God wisely, then you need to approach Him with persistent, fervent prayers for the vindication of His people. Prayers for the exaltation of His name and the coming of His kingdom. Persistently petitioning God for that which is dearest to His heart. I don't think it's a stretch, is it, to say here, our prayers aren't big enough, are they? I think God is concerned with the smallest of matters in our life. But I also think that God is not pleased when we get stuck there in our prayers. When all it is is about physical health, And all it is is about providing this or that little matter. And all it is is about me. Our prayers are too small and our prayers are too selfish. You know how to approach the God of the universe? You approach Him on His terms and you speak to Him in consistent petition about what He wants. Because what He wants is the ultimate good for this planet. Our prayers are too small. We could illustrate it in so many other ways as well. But I see right now an illustration how much energy is going into praying about the marriage laws of Minnesota right now. And that's good. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong about that. I believe this is a matter that is close to the heart of God. But I wonder how many people gathering for rallies and prayers and spending day after day petitioning God that our constitution in this this state would change, who at the same time do not even think that there are Christians in other lands that are dying today. They are imprisoned. They are tortured. They are giving their life because they are followers of Jesus Christ. That matters to the heart of God. Many things for which we should pray, but let's elevate our prayers to remember God's agenda in this earth. Not only our agenda in our small world, but His agenda in all of the universe. His agenda is the cry of those who are persecuted. His agenda is to bring them vindication, ultimately. His agenda is for Jesus Christ to come. His agenda is for righteousness to reign on this earth. Does that matter to us? 
We get pretty quickly tired of someone whose constant conversation with us is about things that are very small in our estimation. Let's not go there with God. We need to elevate our prayers. What needs to matter to us is that which matters to Him. Those of you who labor here in prayer on Wednesday nights, let's take this to heart. Let's realize that coming to prayer on Wednesday night is not having something to do while the kids are in class. Coming to prayer on Wednesday night is to beseech God before His throne together and ask Him to glorify His name. We come in a project every Wednesday night to beg God to glorify Himself to hear the cries of those who are suffering through the world for His sake. That's what prayer is about. In your daily prayers as you come before the throne of God, is your list clogged with me, 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 me? Or is there a great project of prayer that you undertake every day asking God for Him to glorify His name? How do we pray? Jesus promises here that as we pray that way, He will respond quickly. Or we might translate it suddenly, but I think probably the better translation, the way that the Greek phrase is more commonly used, is quickly. And you say, well, where's the quickness in all of this? God's people have been suffering for a long, long time, but at least from the time of Christ, some 2,000 years. I think this word needs to be understood in light of eternity. You see, as human beings on this earth, we are masters at the small because we're so small. You think of this earth is a tiny speck of sand on the oceans of the earth, on the seashores of the earth. We are so small physically, our minds can't comprehend it. And our little lives are even smaller than that in the grand scheme of things. So we're masters at the small. And so when Jesus says, I will come quickly and answer your prayers, and we say, it's been 2,000 years. Remember, 2,000 years in light of eternity is just a drop in the ocean. He will answer quickly. He will answer suddenly. He will vindicate His people and glorify His name. That day is coming. The Son of Man will return. Pray for it. Seek His face. Perhaps there is something of a cryptic prophecy here that there will be a delay. For us as small people, it will seem like a very long time. But continue to storm the throne of God and ask for the return of the Son and the establishment of the kingdom, and you will be approaching God the way He desires to be approached. Is this how we approach Him? Is, does this characterize our relationship to God? May this be us. It doesn't matter how big or small we are in comparison with others. It matters how God sees our heart. Do we in our hearts have a passion for the purposes and the plan of God? And does that passion show itself in our prayer lives? May that be said of us. We care about what God cares about. 
We are, to, we are to pursue God. We are to enter into his presence and to approach him with persistent petition. That's to characterize our approach. Secondly, we are to come into his approach with broken humility. This Jesus illustrates at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Apparently, pride was an issue back then too. And so Jesus addresses this orientation toward God. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. We've always got to work up our heart, our, work up our minds on this point. Pharisee and tax collector means something to us it didn't mean back then. Let's put it in today's terms. There came to a church the director of a homeless shelter, and a crooked, rotten politician. That's the two people. I mean, what side are you voting for here? That's how they would see Pharisee and tax collector. The Pharisee was the devout guy, the righteous person, the person who gave away a lot of things in life in order to pursue God every day. This was the upstanding citizen. The tax collector... That's the vile, cheating, materialistic scoundrel who sold his soul to the God of money and abuses God's people for a living. You think you don't like the IRS. In this day, it was wicked. Nobody liked the tax collector. So thinking in those terms, Jesus says, a tax collector and a Pharisee come to the temple. Now note that word, that, that location. The temple is where God is in Israel. It's coming to him. They come into the presence of God as much as a human being can come into his presence as they approach the temple. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. I tithe all of my income. Did you notice that phrase there in verse 11? He stood up and prayed about himself. Or you notice the marginal note, which I think would be better, that he prayed to himself. He addresses God, but considers the excellencies of no one but himself. The Pharisee's prayer is focused not on what God has accomplished by his grace, but upon what he, the Pharisee, has accomplished all by himself. It is, as one has called it, self-congratulatory monologue disguised as a prayer. The man was stoned on self. R. Kent Hughes. William Barclay said he did not go to pray, he went to inform God how good he was. It is good that the Pharisee is not like these people, isn't it? That's a good thing. I thank you that I am not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, and a tax collector. That's a good thing that he's not like those people. It's good that he leads a devout life. Nothing wrong with fasting Monday and Thursday as the Pharisees uh, did. Nothing wrong with tithing more of their possessions than the law required. The problem is that the man's approach to God was all off. In contrast to this man filled with self, you notice the eyes 
that just pile up through all of this. I this, I that. It's all about him. In contrast to this man, we notice in verse 13 the tax collector. But the tax collector, this dirty, rotten scoundrel of a guy, stood at a distance. Very important note. The temple is where you approach God. He stands a long ways away. Think of the temple and those vast courts that surrounded it, like a massive parking lot. And you would stroll across that vast distance as you came toward the temple. This man doesn't stroll very far. He stands afar off from the presence of God with a sense that there's holiness there. That God is there. And I must not get any closer. I want to talk to God, but I don't want to come so close to Him. And this man in great humility beats his breast as he prays from a distance. Have you seen this practice developing over recent years of athletes pounding their chests when they've made a great play? It seems like it's a basketball thing for some reason. The, you know, as you look at this and why that is, the breast stands for the individual. It's sort of the center of who we are and what we stand for. When, when, it, when, it, when an athlete makes some moderate basket and pounds his chest, there is no way of saying, humanly speaking, in a physical way, I am great. Look at me. Now, I know some of those guys might not know what they're doing, but that's what they're saying. The breast is your person, it's your being. Look at me and what I've done. What this tax collector is doing is the exact opposite. It is the beating of the breast in contrition, in humiliation. It is saying there is no worse sinner than me. In fact, in the Greek text, he says, I am the sinner. And the commentators are in universal agreement, at least as far as I have read that this article, the sinner, is pointing to himself as the ultimate sinner, as Paul did when he spoke of himself as the chief of sinners. There's no self-promotion here. There's no self-orientation here. There is nothing but humble approach before the throne of God. And notice what he asks for. He says, Be mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. This, our translation, misses in all of its fineness. For the word that this man uses is the word propitiation. Be propitious to me, the sinner. He is saying, God, have mercy to atone for my sin. Wash away my unrighteousness and my wickedness. You see, the truth that this man understands is that God is perfectly holy, and therefore God hates sin. Do we have a sense of that when we enter into the presence of God? He hates sin. It is against His nature. It is ultimately appalling to Him. God hates sin. Point A. Point B, I am a sinner. What's the obvious conclusion? God hates me or something needs to happen. He needs to extend to me His mercy, His undeserved protection and grace. That's the approach of this man. God 
hates sin because he is holy. God hates our selfishness. He's not just okay with it. He despises it. God hates when we lie and misrepresent the truth. He hates our greed. He hates our failure to love. He hates our lust. He hates our sin with a passion. And it seems that our culture, and even the Christian church as it soaks up that culture, is so oriented against this point that it needs to be stressed. God despises sin. This man knows that. To minimize the seriousness of sin, to use our theme today, would be like approaching a tractor trailer on a two-lane road at a high speed, looking in your rearview mirror, talking on your cell phone, and having a drink in your hand. Utterly stupid. But we, that doesn't even begin to say what it is like to approach God flippantly and selfishly in a self-promoting manner. That is dangerous because God hates sin and we are sinners. Now that's not the whole picture of how God wants us to come into his presence, but it is a very important part of the picture. And so Jesus stresses this point, driving it home at verse 14. I tell you that this man, which man? This is going to really rework his audience's thinking. This man, this scoundrel, this wicked tax collector, this man, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Now that's not fair. You have to realize those hearing this message have been hurt by tax collectors left and right. They despise them. This man went to his home justified. Why? Is it because of how he lived? Is it because of his merit before God? He approaches God humbly in abject spiritual poverty and he pleads for mercy. And here's the wonder. God forgives him. God takes him in his sin and says, you are mine. I give you my righteousness. He forgives him. Here's a great truth. One of the greatest truths of the Christian faith. There is a righteousness from God that comes apart from law. You have violated the law of God. We have all sinned and fall short of his glory. But there is a righteousness that comes from God, not your gut. From God, a righteousness comes, to which the Old Testament prophesied, to which it spoke. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Why is that? Because He is the propitiation of our sin. He is the one who satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. He has taken the judgment and the penalty of your sin and mine, and he has laid down his life to pay the ransom, to pay the price of our sin. And so, says Jesus at the middle of verse 14, 
Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is how you approach God. There's only one way that a sinner can approach him, that is humbly and asking for his mercy. In abject spiritual poverty, saying, Please be propitious to me, the sinner. That is the person on whom God has mercy. And I wonder this morning, have you received God? Have you come into his presence in that way? Have you approached him on those terms? Have you come to realize that you are a sinner in desperate need of the Lord? In desperate need of God's forgiveness? Have you humbly come before him and asked for mercy to live? This, the approach to God many are commending these days really honestly doesn't look anything like this at all. Many would have us approach the I'm okay, you're okay God. Boy, am I glad you came to me. You're one valuable person. Please enter into my presence and let me love you because you're so valuable. That's sort of the picture that many are painting today of God. He is a God of compassion and welcome, but He's a God of compassion and welcome toward those who come pleading for His mercy and His forgiveness, recognizing that they are fallen and sinful. This is the way it really is. If you have not come to see yourself as wholly deserving of God's wrathful judgment, then you have never really seen yourself, and you've never really seen God. If you want to see God, then picture in your mind the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, beaten and bloodied and dying, and know that he did that because he had to. He had to because of our sin. That's not an I'm okay, you're okay God. That's a God of holiness who gave his all to provide for your forgiveness and mine. Robertson McQuilkin said, I think very wisely, the reason many are not sure of their salvation these days is that they have never been sure of their damnation. Sure that this is what they deserved. If you've never come to know that's what you deserve, then you need to meet the God of the Bible. And as you approach him, I plead with you to come carefully. Jesus illustrates this theme now in verses 15 through 17, as he, if we could add a third component here, that we need to approach God with persistent petition with utter humility and thirdly in childlike trust verse 15 I think there's a reason Luke puts this here though it may not have followed directly in history he says people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them when the disciples saw this they rebuked them but Jesus called the children to him now there's this judgmental Jesus who wants to torch everybody in hell, right? 
Here's the same Jesus welcoming babies into his presence. In fact, this is one of the great uniquenesses of the Christian faith and of Jesus particularly as a world religion leader, if we want to put it that way. That he welcomed children and loved children is a unique thing. And it is unique because Jesus wanted us to see how children operate in their relationships. Now, they do all kinds of things that are wrong. Jesus isn't commending them to be perfect people. He's not saying they're all saved because they're children. But he is saying there's something about simple childlike trust that I want you to see. I welcome it and I exalt it. I promote it. He calls these children into his presence. Apparently, the disciples think Jesus is too busy or in some way that this approach is below him. And he says, oh, no. No, let them come. I think he's talking here to the disciples. Let them come, verse 16. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Spiritually speaking, children come empty-handed. They cannot brag about their religious merits. They approach God with no appeal to fame or fortune. They're not skeptical. They're not cynical. They know how to receive a gift without apology or trying to pay it back. They're simply trusting. This, says Jesus, matters. This is the right approach to God. I want you to see these children, and I welcome you children into my presence because where you're at is the kind of, is the approach that we need to make to God. They're trusting. I apologize for lacking some of the details here, but I heard John MacArthur many years ago tell an illustration that I've never forgotten, and I'll fill in as much as I can. But as I recall, he spoke of two homeless boys many years ago in a different era who were put into a shelter one of the boys was extremely ill. That night they were talking, the two boys, as two boys do, untrained, unschooled, no spiritual background. Little boys in England, I believe, and they were talking about what it might mean to go into eternity. They really didn't know much about it. But the one boy said to the other, he had somehow contacted some camp meetings along the way, and he said, I understand, tell, that if you raise your hand before you die, Jesus will take you into heaven. They talked themselves to sleep that night. And in the night, the other boy died. And as the story is told, as they looked at him that morning, his hand was propped up on his pillow, raised to the sky. That, says Jesus, is how you enter the kingdom of God. Simple, childlike trust. And so he goes on in verse 17 and says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. If you refuse to raise your hand 
By that I mean you refuse in simple faith, faith to trust what Jesus has done to provide your forgiveness. You will not enter the kingdom of God. One is paraphrased Spurgeon is saying, we must not think a child cannot come to God until he is like a man, but that a man cannot come to God until he is like a child. Let's say it and be fair. It is risky business to approach God. When a sinner approaches a holy God, well, you want to get that right. It really matters to get it right. But here is the great wonder. We can approach God. And he's not asking you for money. He's not asking you for fame. He's not asking for all of your great merits and how wonderful you are as a person. He is asking you simply to put your childlike trust in what he has told you. That Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, came to this earth and died to pay the penalty of your sin. That he rose from the dead to give you spiritual life and allow you through forgiveness to enter into the presence of the Father for eternity. That's a simple message that we must trust like a child. No negotiation, no paying back, no deep questions necessarily at this point, just simple confidence that that is what God has done and that is how I may be forgiven. If you know the Lord as your Savior that way, through simple faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is now our joy to approach this Father's throne. We have read about that from Hebrews 7 this morning. We have sung about that in these songs. Our joy is to enter into the presence of this holy God and to come boldly into His presence and to do what? Now, to pat ourselves on the back and to tell Him how good we are. Now, to assault His throne with our smallness and our selfishness. No, our job as His people is to come into His presence and contend for His glory. To pray that He will vindicate His name in this earth that is so turned against Him. To pray that Jesus Christ would come again and set right what is so twisted and wrong. To prevail with God as He contends for His glory in this earth. That is our job. That is our joy. It is risky to approach a holy God, but through Christ we can. We can approach and we can live to tell about it. And we can live in that joy, coming into his presence humbly, in simple childlike faith, pleading for his mercy. We can spend the rest of our days communing with God in his glory and for his glory. Here is a wonder. As sinners, we can come before the throne of God and live.
Let's do that as we pray. Help us in, Father. Help us in. We need your invitation. We need your warmth to draw us close. And though in spirit we stand at the far reaches of the courts of heaven with the publican, the tax collector, and We say we don't deserve to be in your presence, but Father, draw us in and help us on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your very presence, to walk right through the courts and into the temple and through the holy place and into the most holy place. Strengthen us, Lord, now to know that we can do that and to do so standing in your presence. Robed, I trust, in humility, in spiritual poverty, yet covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness that was handed to us because of your grace. God, may we never take for granted what Jesus has done for us We enter into your presence with joy, with thanksgiving, and we ask of you, Father, to hear the cry of our heart, to purify us as your people. And we ask our Father that your name would be exalted and honored on earth as it is in heaven. As the angels of heaven sing of your majesty and surround your glory and exalt in your presence, As those souls that are now with you lift up voices to sing of your greatness and your mercy and your goodness and your power and authority, that all power and riches and might and glory and splendor belongs to you. As they sing those songs, as they proclaim those truths, I pray, dear God, that that day would dawn here, that Jesus would come that he would return to set up his throne and to make this world right. We pray for that day. We plead in the interim for those who suffer and for the assault against your name and your holiness in the lifestyles of people, in the issue of marriage, in the issues of the cultures of this world, and certainly in those places where your people are harmed. God, we see a world twisted against you, but we pray in your presence that you would exercise your justice and your mercy. Please come again. Send Jesus, and may we rejoice in his kingdom now. Our Father God, 
I pray for any who are not ready to enter into your presence. Please, Lord, if nothing else, steer them today to see and embrace the method of the publican, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. May they leave right here all of their self-righteousness and go on from this place to seek your face. May your light dawn on them and may you give life to their dead soul. Please open hearts to that point, we pray, as that need is here among us. And we will give thanks for what you are pleased to do. In the name of Jesus, amen.